I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. That's a perfect place to pick up, I think, because I was fascinated in this conversation about I'm in the arts, not in science, and uh, the citizen scientist concept, which is, was something I'd never heard of. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and how that fits in with the work that you're doing at the Exploratorium and what impact that's having on the, the kinds of things you're doing. We don't exactly, we don't do citizen science at the Exploratorium per se, but we... Um, the Exploratorium is a laboratory um, for both art and science, we think, and, or we're continuing to evolve it to be that, and we've been doing it for about 40 years now. Um, and so it's a place for people to come and do their own investigations and experiments. And citizen science is a, is a movement. Um, some would tell you it's an educational movement. Others would say it's a... Um, you know, a cynical ploy to get buy-in. Other people would say it's a good ploy to get buy-in um, for people. And I think that, you know, Jill mentioned SETI earlier and others did to buy into the scientific endeavor collectively or the scientific enterprise collectively. And so the idea is to get people who are interested in, you know, most of us are curious about the natural world to collect information mostly in the form of data uh, to serve scientific questions or uh, scientific experiments. Do you feel like that's some, in some respects sort of an outgrowth of the kind of work you guys have been doing for so long, which is really empowering people to do their own investigations, discover for themselves, and then somebody has like taken that to a next step? Well, I think it's an outgrowth of a lot of things. I mean, I think it's an outgrowth of, uh, you know, Ken earlier was saying things are a lot better than they were in the 1950s. And uh, John was talking about the battle between the 50s and the 60s early, earlier. There were some good things that, that happened in the 1950s, and one of which was that scientists decided that our educational system was, our science education system was terrible in this country. Mostly you didn't get that in the United States. Um, hardly anybody got science education in high school. Um, before World War II, and they decided that that something should happen about that, and they um, began an education reform here in this country as scientists, even in the midst of them being blacklisted, as, as was the founder of our organization, but he um, picked up and carried on with that. So that's one piece. Another piece is the Internet um, and everything that you can get out there. I mean, there's so much interesting that's pleasurable to read. We worry about the, the um, you know, all of the garbage and the bad things that are out there, but there's so much good out there. I, my background was in art, and yet uh, I find that, that I, can, I can go and find for myself as a person information about, you know, their the tuning of the beam right now at CERN to, cat, to figure out how to do the next patch of work. So, and I think that, um, you know, I think there's this sort of wonderful, messy 
thing that's happening right now that sort of looks a little bit like citizen science, it looks a little bit like do-it-yourself. It looks a lot like craftsmanship of the 19th century and people having to make things for themselves. And you're, you guys have an exhibition right now that kind of covers a lot more than, than art, but must be aesthetic or why, it's, why, it's, and it's why? A, Yeah, it's actually an idea that we're pursuing over at Yerba Buena for, we've begun pursuing and we will continue to pursue mm -hmm. because I think what you're talking about is, a, is something that's happening clearly. That's why I was intrigued by the science part because I didn't un know that about science, but it's certainly happening, happening in the humanities and there's a questioning of authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. Who gets to claim who gets to who gets to do it first of all, and then who gets to claim it? I mean, do you define yourself as an artist and therefore you establish yourself as an artist, and then you, your art is is authoritative right. because you did it and you said you were an artist, and now because you went to school or you went to art school or you got you sold piece or whatever the the marker is, then you're the one that holds, and you, these other people are just citizens doing craft, uh, which right. is done usually said in a pejorative way. Or you know some sort of interesting hobby, you know that sort of thing. So there's a whole movement, and I think it, co it completely corresponds with what's happening with the internet. I think the internet is actually metaphorically responsible for this. To say, well, why not? Why who? Why do you get to say that you're an artist and I'm not? So the exhibition that you're referencing is this exhibition which we actually unfortunately just closed called Technocraft, and it was really an investigation into the way that uh, you know ordinary folks. We're redesigning all kinds of objects in ways that um, were surprising, and we're subverting this authoritative, I am the artist, I will create it, I will put it on a, a pedestal, you will look at it, you won't touch it, you, won't, you, know, you may have an individual response to it, but that's kind of it, and I'm not really interested in what that is. Uh, so it's a completely different way of thinking about artistic production, which is both exciting and, for many people, terrifying, too. And it it allows us to kind of look back a little bit and think about when that's been done before. Ordinary citizens right, are such right. innovators. I mean, the case modders that you exhibited, right? Those guys are very similar to the hot rod guys, Big, big Daddy and all of those guys. It's the same sensibility that if you have a technology, you should be able to modify it. And that is, is really the craft, that craft problem it's, a, it's been a problem because of industry, right? Right, but right. What's interesting, uh, the curator of that exhibition, Eve Bahar, was, you know, has this idea about the, um, the sort of professionalization of that and people's desire to have a level of rigor but to sort of do it themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I was hearing in your conversation earlier with Ken is this question actually of, well, if just everybody's doing it, is is how do we know that it's worthwhile or, you know, all these sorts of questions start to come up. Um, but I was thinking when you were saying that too, then at the, by the same token, we have pretty regularly get these reports in newspapers about qualified scientists whose research can't be duplicated. So maybe there was something wrong there. So the authoritative model that we established is in fact not reliably authoritative. So I think that kind of freaks everybody out. They're not sure what to do about that. Yeah, and, and Burning Man isn't a good model for a government, certainly, but it's a fabulous model for what happens when everybody's doing it and you sort of see what, like, in the sense of art and craft because that event is very good at letting everybody in the 
pool or everybody in the club and then you as the participant decide what's good and bad and people get better or worse or go away or, or come out. Well, Just like society, right? Right, exactly. And the Wikipedia phenomenon that we also heard talked about earlier, right, with Violet Blue is saying, well, but somebody got on my Wikipedia site and it was a stalker and wrote all this stuff. and po- you know, So it, it becomes skeptical on every different level, which I think then puts the the onus back on us to sift through an amazing amount of information and try to figure out truth and fact if there are such things. Yeah, and I wanted to uh, ask you about that because you're known here in, in San Francisco for bringing um, dance and music and art from, uh, from countries and choreographers and composers from Vietnam, uh, all over South Asia, and and uh, that's a that's an unusual space to be, and that's just similar. It strikes me to the first to to Ken before, and so what are you thinking about now in terms of this idea? Where where are you going to go next um, with your well? Um, Interestingly enough, um, for several years now, I've been pursuing a, a work with um, uh, contemporary artists in Africa for many of the same reasons that Ken was talking about earlier in terms of um, people coming out of a particular tradition and engaging with the contemporary world. Um, and within my field, that's um, pretty uh, unusual. People mm-hmm. tend, in, in the field of the performing arts in, in Europe and the United States, tend to have this very colonialist point of view. And mostly, what we're interested in is the, you know, the beautiful bodies and the the drums, and so it's to go into a place like Abidjan, a place like Nairobi, a place like Johannesburg, find people who are are raised in a particular tradition that has nothing to do with Western culture, um, where people have a hard time finding food and clean water, but everyone has a cell phone, and trying to put those two things together and see what kind of artistic commentary comes out of that. Um, what's interesting about that to me and why I'm seeking out that kind of work is the sense of urgency about it, which I feel is missing in a lot of uh, contemporary work in the United States. is a little bit more self-indulgent and a little bit more pretty and a little bit less urgent around, um, you know, sort of core hu- the core essence of being a human being, which is I find really... Um, at this particular point in time in this society, I think is like vital, vital. So I, so that's particularly interesting to me right now. Well, that's a, exciting in terms of this idea of, uh, you know, thinking about these other cultures representing themselves and not ours. It's a little. What about that problem of once again we're going to these places to, you know, to save ourselves? Right here we are going back to, to. Um, places where we were colonists, and now we're, now instead of of goods, it's culture. It's this cultural production. No, it's, a, no, it's a really excellent excellent point. In fact, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to this uh, convening that we're we're doing. This group that I'm part of called the Africa Contemporary Arts Consortium, and we're having a convening in Nairobi with um, African artists to try to sort through that very question because we want to not do the import-export model and we do not want to do the colonial model and yet we feel like there's some conversation that can be had between these artists and these U.S.-based organizations. And it's more of an exchange model that we're going after and more of a, of a, a 
a transfer of knowledge and understanding and with really limited expectations, so we're not looking for salvation. I loved what he said about, you know, Californians, in 20 minutes we have a spiritual experience. Because um, there is that kind of um, cultural tourism at, um, aspect of, of um, American artists and presenters going to other countries and other cultures and being just sort of like overwhelmed with it. And this, okay, let's grab it and bring it back to the United States and share it with all my friends because it's so cool. And then send them back to Africa and whatever. So we're, we're really trying to, um, trying to figure out a different way of doing that that's a more, um, a more equitable. Maybe there's one in, uh, maybe there's a, a message with the current uh, Hawaiian navigators, I don't know, or a model with that. I, I love that story. Um, we, we've been working at the Exploratorium with a group of Hawaiian navigators, and uh, they, in Hawaii, they lost the traditional um, forms of navigation, so they actually had to go travel to another part of Polynesia and convince another culture that didn't typically share that knowledge to reteach them. So there were sort of two things that happened there. They had to make this decision to mitigate something or remediate and then they had to go convince a completely different group of people to share that knowledge and then what they've done with this these navigation traditions now is they've taken them back and rather than it being sort of a, a traditional thing or 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 uh, sort of stuck they've taken um, borrowed the best of of uh, Western uh, material science or technology to apply that to the to the production of the boats of the ships and then um, the best or the most useful of non instrument um, astronomy to help evolve the Hawaiian or the Polynesian traditions of non instrument navigation so they've taken the, this collection of ideas know two Polynesian cultures but two very different ones um, and and then these two Western um, things and reinvented something that's t- that's new it's a new kind of Polynesian navigation that now functions and goes forward and interestingly also serves as a model for how the Hawaiians are dealing with the scientists it, it, you know What's interesting there is it kind of parks back to something somebody said earlier about the whole identity issue, too. I was several years ago doing work in Cambodia, and, of course, during the Khmer Rouge time, artists were targeted as as enemies of the state, were either um, annihilated or or they fled the country. So post-Khmer Rouge, there was a real effort within Cambodia to try to find these master artists, because this is a a dance tradition that had been passed down from generation to generation and was never written down. It was all, you know, passed down through the body. And so when people are gone, there's no, who's the bearer of the tradition, right? So people were brought back from, like, France and the United States and where the, uh, were brought back to Cambodia and tried to, to redevelop this, and this culture that was in danger of being lost. But then contemporary Cambodians were like, well, that's part one. Part two is now what? Because that is not the world we live in anymore. We live in this world. How do we take that cultural tradition and make it uh, of this contemporary world that we live in? And many of those artists didn't really want to come back to Cambodia. They had 
settled in Long Beach, and they were happy there, <laughs> and they didn't really want to move back there. So I know of, of uh, at least one uh, woman, Sophie Lynn Shapiro, who lives in Long Beach and has made uh, a really extraordinary effort at, at doing precisely that, making a contemporary, a contemporary structure and a contemporary form out of something that was at one time almost lost. And, and I think that's, in terms of it, talking about it getting better, that, that seems to be so exciting to me, this, this blending of, of traditional and modern. And, and it shouldn't always be these terrible reasons that it happens, but it also seems like this very interesting uh, model for a lot of cultural production that we should pay attention to. So, yeah, it, well, so that's interesting. I mean, that's an interesting thing that I think about a lot is that what, well, what is the stimulus for making that happen? And yes, it shouldn't be a catastrophe like right. the Khmer Rouge. But on the other hand, um, in a, with a certain degree of what's the level of creativity that occurs? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, right, a meteor. But what's the level of creativity that occurs in a sort of comfortable society? Do you have any... Uh, uh, speculation about, do you care to speculate about any um, new forms that will come from Indonesia, new forms of art or thinking because of rebuilding after the, after the tsunami? Have you noticed? You know, um, I was just was in Indonesia in March and, um, and the similar, saw a similar thing occurring in terms of what I was mentioning in Africa and also Cambodia in terms of um, a, a specific cultural tradition encountering the contemporary world what okay what i we think of as the contemporary world which is kind of a is definitely a western framework but um the the sort of hybrid form that starts to emerge out of that um and i think that's as they were talking earlier about identity i think that the the hybridization is what we're what we're really beginning to see not just hybridization of culture but hybridization of form too so that artists are working in a lot of different pulling from a lot of different um, artistic places in order to create something completely um, unseen or unheard of before and it does raise the the identity issue like at what point do you feel like you've, you've gone so far that you're no longer what you initially defined yourself as and does that matter Wow. That's one minute, right? <laughs> Do you think we'll see some similar things in New Orleans, out of New Orleans and Louisiana? I think we already have, actually. I think yeah. some, some really interesting work is coming out of there that, that is um, reflective of the tragedy, not just of the hurricane, but of the aftermath and the lack of response to... There's, actually, I was in New Orleans a, a, and meeting with some people there who are really, in my business was his arts administration, really doing some creative things about institutionality that, that none of the rest of us are doing. Well, Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was you, really Marissa. fun. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.